Hello, it's Toby Haydokes Who's Round, and I'm at last getting round to putting together these final few episodes. You could say, I'm finally getting something done! I'm in the beautiful Stratford-upon-Avon. Um, I think Shakespeare's going to be a, a subject of this interview, but I will start, as I always do, by asking my uh, guest uh, who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Um, hello, I am Clifford Rose, and we are talking, first of all, about Doctor Who because I was lucky enough to be in it in, in one series um, of four episodes, I think, called Warrior's Gate, which was quite an interesting experience for me. Um, never having done anything quite like that before, I'd done mainly theatre, classical theatre particularly, and a lot of sort of drama on television, things like plays for today um, and, and, and series for the BBC in particular. Uh, but Doctor Who was a little bit out of the ordinary for me. And I was playing a, a very interesting character, a sort of pirate captain of a pirate spaceship, um, who was um, trying to control his crew, who were very stroppy. And I, looking back on it, and I've seen it once or twice since then, I always felt he was a bit like Captain Mannering in Dad's <laughs> Army, you know, trying to keep an unruly mob in check and sort of keep in command. So it was a very interesting and nice part to play with a lovely cast. And um, altogether, apart from one or two hiccups in production, which we won't go into now, it was a very happy experience and I, I enjoyed it very much. And I have to say, it's one of the shows I've done which has been repeated the most and sells the most, which is very Not nice. Always handy. Which is always very good, yes. So that's Doctor Who. It's interesting because the phrase that springs to mind uh, is the banality of evil. And it's, it's funny, the, the Iago's one sees, for example, the most effective ones are actually not the ones that chew the scenery and, and enjoy it more. I'm thinking of the Ian McKellen's who are the ones that actually play against mm. the evil. And those, those Doctor Who villains are, uh, are rather interesting in Warrior's Gate is that they are just idiots trying to do a job. Absolutely, yes. Now, he was not an incredibly bright man. His name was Rorvik. He was not incredibly bright. But he, um, he knew what he had to do, and it was a matter of kind of getting control and getting his ideas across and keeping in command. It's the old thing of losing command and things sort of um, going out of the window and not um, doing the things that he wanted his crew to do. So he was an interesting character, and I was bearded, which was quite interesting again, because uh, looking at it now, I was quite amazed because it's not a real beard. It was, it was a stick-on beard. Oh, really? Yes, which I thought, initially, I thought is not going to work. But having seen it in the first few shots, I thought, no, that lo actually looks rather good. Well, well yeah, I so, thought it was a yeah, real beard. Well, no, so. it's not, you see, it's not, no. Um, and um, the only thing, of course, it had to be taken off at the end of the day's work in the studio and put on again for the next day which I hate, all that mm. sort of thing of sticking on beards and taking off beards. I have worn beards in other parts, which I've grown myself, which has been slightly different. But th this was a stick-on beard, which was part of the part of the process for playing this character. Um, 
and um, no, it was altogether enjoyable. I, I, I would say that unhesitatingly. And looking at it now, which I saw it again quite recently, um, I, I thought it held up very well. I must say, um, you know, I've been to these conferences where you have Doctor Who conferences, yeah, and you go and chat to an audience and answer questions and all that kind of thing. And uh, I was amazed, and they gave me a, a, a copy of the of the Warriors Gate, and it, it was great to see it being really very effective. I thought. Well, you give it. It's interesting because you give him a sort of nasal. You speak very mm. finely, of course. You're mm. a classical actor, but you give him a sort of nasal, whiny voice, which yes. is very. It's a very interesting yes, choice. Yes, that yes, really absolutely. Works. Yes, I, I did. Um, I thought he wasn't exactly sort of. Uh, what's the word? Uh, top drawer somehow, <laughs> not not sort of upper crust quite, although he would like to think he was. Um, but I do I do liken him to Captain Mannering very much so. Um, who I think have the same has or had the same problems. Well, you you have a because your final scene is a brilliant close-up of you where you yes, sort of yes. lose your mind That's and, right, and yeah. your, your final line is I'm finally getting something yes, done, I, and I, you give him this sort of insane. Absolutely, tackle. absolutely right. Yes, and of course I had this wrestling thing with Tom Baker on the gantry towards the end. I remember, which um, which which filled me with dread as I knew it was approaching and we had to do it. You know, because. Um, I thought, how 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 dangerous is this going to be? Is it, is it, is it going to be something that uh, we're going to take great care over? You know, uh, but in the event, it was actually fine. It was all quite quite sort of playful, really. But I had my worries as it as it as it came up, as it loomed up. You know, in the day shooting, and this is this is coming next. This this grappling with with um, physical grappling with, with Tom Baker on the gantry, but it was all okay. And uh, I mean, even even Tom now, I think, admits that that was quite a difficult time. He was coming to the end yes, of yes. his Doctor Who. He was indeed, yes, he was, yes. So, 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 uh, how was it with 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 Tom? Obviously, during the end of something, a party played for eight years, which must be quite a wrench. Isn't it? I thought he was slightly. I have to say, I've been asked this before, of course, and I I, I thought he was slightly tired, slightly. Um, um, stale, I would suppose is the word, I'm to, not to be too impolite, but I felt he was going through the motions a bit, because he had been doing it now for so long, and of course he was having this thing with Lala Lloyd, and they were going to be married, I, or I, they, were, they, yeah, were go, they were going to be married, yeah. I think, yes, but um, all that seemed to um, impinge on it, you know, that he was not quite the... It was not quite the performer that he had been, say, I don't know, two or three years before. Sure. You know, because he was getting to the end of the road. He was, and, and yes, he was definitely. I mean, he wasn't in any way not able to do it, but I just felt he was slightly tired, you know, and um, didn't want to change anything. He didn't want to stick to what's in the script. He didn't want to sort of innovate. Just get on, do it, you know. Well, that, that, maybe I can turn that on to you then, as, a, as an actor, as a general point, mm. who's done a lot of theatre runs. Mm. How do you keep it interesting for yourself and therefore the audience when you've been doing a very long run of a play? Well, that's a very good question because it is very difficult. Um, I've been on the whole lucky in that I've worked a lot with the RSC, but the great advantage where you do plays in repertory or repertoire. So, in, in other words, you don't do one play every single night for eight, eight shows a week. 
you do one play the Monday, Tuesday, you do another play on Wednesday, Thursday, and another play again, all of which you've rehearsed and put into the repertoire. So each time you come back to this particular play, you've had a gap, which mm. is nice. So it's, it's always a bit fresh. It's not like doing it night after night after night, uh, which is a, an enormous advantage. Same with the National, exactly the same thing. Playing in repertoire is a huge advantage for keeping shows fresh for the show, for the production, for the actors. Very, very good. But when I have been in a long run of one show, um, the, the thing I've always tried to do is to try and find something new in it each night, not to repeat what I did the night before. Mm. You know, And I found that on the whole is very helpful. It just varies something slightly. Mm. Um, and of course you have to know that your fellow actors are onto this, on the way, but doing the bits of the same sort of thing themselves. They are changing things and maybe just altering things a little bit. Without discussion, I mean, you just do it in performance, you know. Sure. Uh, and because you know it all so well, it doesn't throw you, it doesn't throw them, hopefully. Um, and, and it just keeps it alive. And you, and you also discover things, of course. Uh, this is where it's much better to be in a, a good play, <laughs> rather than, shall we say, Agatha Christie, where you can't find new things, because once you've done it, that's it. There's no leeway for anything new or inventive, really, because it's just not there in the script. But if you're doing, say, an Ibsen or a Shakespeare, Ibsen in particular, I've done quite a lot of Ibsen, it, it, it's, it, it's absolutely full of possibilities to change and to develop and discover, which I found I did, um, in, in, well, more than one I've done, um, playing it night after night. You find new things, new colours in the character, new emotions, new depths, new directions, um, which you obviously, you try and explore in performance. Mm. And that's the way I keep it fresh. What I wonder then is the other side of that is there. I remember working with a brilliant Iago who on the first week was amazing, but then by the end of it, yeah. in that desire to keep it fresh, he actually lost, I thought, yeah. some of... So that is, there a, is there a danger if you change that you actually lose what it was you had? Well, there is a danger. Yeah, of course there is. You have to be careful. No, no, no question. You have to be careful. And you have to be aware of some actors who go too far in, in this area, in this way. You know, they change things too much, too radically, and, and really throw a scene completely uh, off balance. I mean, that, that can happen. But, uh, but you know, you have to be aware of it. it keeps you on your toes, which is jolly good, I think. <laughs> yes, jolly good. Yes. So tell, take me right back. What was it that inspired you to become uh, an actor? Um, and, uh, and how did you go about it? I was originally intending to become a doctor. Uh, at school I studied the sciences because I wanted to be a doctor. Uh, I liked the idea of being somebody who helped people who were in pain or in illness. And I, I just liked the idea and I, I just found it, I just found medicine very interesting. Um, I, I'll cut a long story short because um, obviously I didn't become a doctor. Um, I, I didn't get into medical school basically uh, because just after the war and there was a kind of rationing system this means 1948-49, uh, whereby the medical schools were taking people who'd done national service or ex-servicemen, and those who wanted to go straight from school, like I did, I wanted to go straight to uh, medical college. Uh, it was extremely difficult because the ratio was against you. 
and as a result, I didn't, I didn't get in. I, so I thought, ah, I, I applied to five, and I thought, ah, this is interesting. What do I do now? Uh, they didn't seem to want me as, as a doctor, and I think I'm going to do something else completely different. I think I was quite sort of arrogant and in a hurry, so I, I'm going to change completely. I'll do something quite different. I had a brother called David, who alas has died, um, who's an actor. He, he was at RADA at this time, um, younger than me, just younger than me. He was at RADA. And I saw all his end-of-term shows, and I liked what I saw. And I used to come over here to Stratford from my school, which was King's School Worcester, every summer with a six-form to see a play. And the final one I saw uh, of that sort of stint was Dr. Faustus with Robert Harris and Paul Schofield. And it absolutely made me decide that's what I want to do. The, the performances of those two men, in particular Robert Harris as Faustus, it was wonderful, absolutely stunning, stunningly good. I think I'll have a go at that. That's what I'd like to do. So I went to my parents and I said, I want to become an actor like my brother David. And they said, my God, I'm the second actor <laughs> in this family. And we were a little sort of country family. We're not sort of, uh, no theatrical connections at all. Um, and they, they said, well, yes, you can, but you must get a degree because, you know, to be on the safe side. Because mm. as, as you know, in those days, if you had a degree, you could always teach. That's mm. the old thing, you know. So I changed completely. And I went to King's College London to do English, Honours English Literature and Language, which I've not regretted. It was a wonderful course, wonderful teachers. I did three years there, got my degree in English, did masses of plays at the College Drama Society and the University Drama Society. I was often in two, you know, at the same time. Um, and, um, well, I... I, I you know, this just confirmed me, but I had no idea how good I was or not. I had played Macbeth in my last term at school, directed by my headmaster, and he did say on my school report that year some very nice things about my performance. And if you think of becoming an actor, I think you might you might have the makings of one or something. I don't know something nice. Um, so anyway, at the end of my uh, college course, I then had to think, well, now I've got to get a job. I had no idea how good I was or not good. I wrote to Hugh Hunt at the Old Vic, got an audition. I went to an audition with Hugh Hunt, and I think John Barton was there. And I, it, it's quite a good audition, but I didn't get in, shall we say, that was so short. I didn't get in, but they did recommend me to a company which was starting called the Elizabethan Theatre Company down in definite Dartington, run by John Barton and Toby Robertson and Colin George. I went for another audition to them for, for, for that, with John Barton in particular, I remember, and I got in. He offered me a job. He said, yes, we would like to have you in our company. Um, we're doing Henry V. You'll play about five parts, as, as I did, obviously, and it's a sort of number two tour, really, kind of touring number two dates. Um, and in that company is John Nettleton. Yes, indeed. Peter Jeffrey, Frank Windsor, Yvonne Bonamy, um, obviously David Robinson. Um, who else? Uh, but, but there was a lot of very good young 
Gordon Gosclaw, another one, that's right. A lot of very good young people. How funny, you've mentioned the four people in that company yeah. who were all in Doctor Who. So well, they were the names I've written down. Well, there we are. Yeah. But they, anyway, so I got in, which is marvellous. My first job, and I was paid uh, £4.17 and six a week, I remember, my first job. I couldn't believe I'd actually paid for doing this. It was wonderful. So I went off to Darkington, obviously rehearsed, in fact with John Barton, as it happened, because he was in Henry V, and I played Sir Thomas Erpingham, the French ambassador, you know, you name it. And when we came to do our first performance, which was in the Marlowe Theatre, Canterbury, I dried on my first speech, can you believe it? With the French ambassador bringing the tennis balls, you know. Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah, yeah. If he has a line, you cannot revel into dukedoms here or there. You cannot revel into dukedoms there, yes. He sent you this ton of treasure, and so you cannot revel into kingdoms there, or dukedoms there. And I dried on the word revel, and I said, you cannot, and it went completely dead. And luckily the light, it did come. So there was a pause, and I said, and I made the sort of thing, and I said, I had a sort of defective R, I got a revel, I played with a defective R, you cannot revel into a kingdom there, or something like that, I said. Um, and I kept it in because I thought it was rather good. <laughs> this, this sort of little pause when he chooses the word he's going to use. Yes, level is the word. That's this. You can't level if you can fail. <laughs> so out of a, yeah. a, a potential disaster came yeah, a, 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 bit, a, bit of, a bit of success, yeah. And, and it was an amazing company because within four weeks we televised it from live from Lime Grove, studios in London, which was incredible. I mean, within four weeks. I mean, and then we transferred to the Westminster Theatre in London, finally. Um, so I'd, I'd done all that within about I guess, two months, I guess. Extraordinary. Yeah, yeah. done you know, in the theatre, television, and, and the West End. I'm incredible. Well, that's, yeah. a, that's a pretty yeah. quick start, isn't it? It was a jolly good start. <laughs> a jolly good start. And then we got, I stayed with that company for two and a half years, and um, we got other directors. We had Peter Hall came in next year. Peter Wood came, who just died, alas. Peter Wood, uh, Michael McCowan, Hugh Goldie, um, but in particular Peter Hall and Peter Wood, I suppose, and John Barton were the three main sort of directors I worked with. Uh, and of course that led eventually to Stratford, because when Peter Hall set up Stratford in 1960, um, he invited me because he and John Barton had worked with me in that company and they offered me um, four parts in his first season in 1960. Mm -hmm. So I was a founder member of the, the RSC. Yeah. Now, you've, you've been sort of top of my scalp list for quite a while, and I think partially because, it um, won't be of interest to the listeners, but I'm from Ludlow and you have mm. a Shropshire mm. connection, and mm. my, my mother, as it turns out, worked with your sister-in-law. But also, when I interviewed David Weston, he oh, yeah. told me that you had professionally performed in every single Shakespeare play bar one. No, that's right, but no, bar three. Yeah. Bar three, is yes, it? Yes, actually bar so, three. So yeah. what, are the th what are the three? That I haven't played. That you haven't done. Henry VIII. Okay, well that's fair enough. It's not Titus all. Andronicus. Mm -hmm. And funnily enough, Coriolanus. Oh, yeah. okay. Yeah. Uh, so that's interesting, because Coriolanus, yeah. you would think you might have stumbled across. I was offered a part in Coriolanus. They, they, made sort of, they were doing a television of it for the um, BBC directed by Elijah Mashinsky, who I'd done Love's Labour's Lost for sure. on television. And uh, he asked me to play one of the tribunes, uh, you know, Junius Brutus, is it, in, in Coriolanus, uh, which I was very interested in because it, it was a kind of 
but sort of in, working class kind of part. I'm not sort of what I normally play yeah. at that time. Um, and but for some reason, uh, another job came up and I couldn't do it. Another job came up, you know, a theatre job, which was longer, I suppose, or something. So I didn't actually do it, which was a shame. But I was offered it, yeah. But I wonder if it gets to the point when you've, say, only got five left to do. Do yes, you sort yes. of go, well, maybe I should go for this record. I oh, I, oh, I'd love to. I really <laughs> would love to. I'd love to be tight to Sepronicus. And, or, or even Henry VIII, which I don't think is quite as exciting a play, but I think Titus is a marvellous piece mm -hmm. of work and, and very exciting. I saw a marvellous production here quite recently with Stephen Boxer. Yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, very, 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 very good. Yeah. Well, I guess which leads us to, because you've done so much Shakespeare and you've found a member, I, you know, you're in uh, um, Ian Holmes, Richard III, and yeah. uh, um, so you've, you've seen at close quarters uh, a, a large number of fine Shakespearean. Mm. So, I guess the question is, who, who seeing at close quarters are the actors that you sort of thought of really nailed it, and what is it that they do, therefore, that that, that singles them out in your mind? It's an easy question to answer that because um, I was surrounded by in that first company, the 1960 company. Uh, these well, they became long-term artists. You know, they stayed for three years, most of them. Um, a, a, a bevy of wonderful actors. Uh, probably my biggest influence would be Eric Porter, mm -hmm. who was a wonderful uh, Shakespearean. I mean, his speaking of the verse was absolutely exemplary, and he was um, he was a he was just a tower of strength and a sort of inspiration to watch. And I and I was in a lot of shows with him in those early days in the sixties. I'm um, Troy and Cresteth, for example. Um, and uh, Ian Holm is also wonderful. Ian Richardson also wonderful. They're all wonderful speakers of the verse. Uh, and the reason why they are so good is because they they totally understand it. Obviously, that's essential. But when I first started out in Shakespeare, I have to say I probably didn't understand all that I was saying. <laughs> Literally, I couldn't. I couldn't paraphrase it. I I just sort of said it. But I, I, I quickly learned from being at Stratford and, and surrounded by these wonderful actors and Peggy Ashcroft, of course, a great hero of mine, um, that you have to understand exactly what you're saying and you have to speak it simply and with meaning and with truthfulness. Don't embroider it, don't sing it. Um, just speak it naturally, giving it its full meaning. And Shakespeare does the rest. You don't have to embroider it, you don't have to overload it with emotion, Shakespeare does it for you. And that's the biggest lesson I learned from all those actors. You know, Peggy Ashcroft was another huge tutor of mine. You ghosts with her as well. I did ghosts with her, I did indeed, yes. No, we, we, I, I, we got a, I was a very great friend of hers, yeah, we, we, we had a very good relationship I think actually. Um, I liked working with her very much indeed. Um, and she gave me some very nice first night presents, <laughs> which is always nice to remember. Signed you, which is lovely. Um, so I would say they were my biggest influence, those, those ones I met. Oh, Paul Schofield, of course, who I did Leo. I was in King Leo with him. He was another terrific, a, a, a terrific Shakespearean actor. But with a gift for comedy. I mean, a really, a bit like Ray Fiennes. Unexpectedly, a wonderful mm. gift for comedy. Um, because I did a thing called Staircase by Charles Dyer at the Old Witch, where I understudied 
a two-hander about two gay barbers, and he played one at Patrick McGee, played the other. And I understudied Patrick McGee, or I wasn't in the show as such. Um, but I obviously had to go into the office every night to be there and hear him over the tannoy. And he was wonderful, he was so funny. Very, he had matters of funny lines, you know. Talking about his age, he had lines like, What's my, my legs like the varicose veins, my legs like fouled parrots' perches. <laughs> well, and McGee yeah. was a marvellous flinty actor, wasn't he? Oh, he was, he, yes, really? he was. I could have did the Marisar with him. Of course. Yes. Oh, was, with Henry yeah. Wolfe, who is another person. Uh, indeed, Henry Wolfe, yes. And Timothy Weston, a lot of them, yeah. Ian Hogg, I mean, indeed, yeah. Yes, yes. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, um, so they were great days, and working with Peter Brook, who I worked with a lot in the early days, who was my great sort of guru, really, I have to say. I know some people didn't like him, some people... I think the women especially found him a bit... a bit tough, a bit sort of acerbic. Um, but I, I I thought he was wonderful. Um, and I still rate him as probably the best director. Really? Work, I think probably, yes, yeah. Well, it's, it, it's rare that one gets an opportunity to do this, so I get... Because you were in that first production of Marisada, yeah, yeah. then you did it again. Um, or many many years later. Yes, yes. I wondered because you you have something that's comparable. Ha, has the profession had the profession changed um, in between? You know, can you compare your experiences of being in the same high-profile production of the same play? Uh, and, and has the lot of an actor changed over those years? I don't think there's a difference between the two times we did the Marasar for the Peter Brook production because it was only a year's difference. I mean, you know, we did it once. And then we revived it the following year, and then we took it to Broadway, and then made a film of it, and that was the end of it. But I then went back to do the it again at the National, mm. um, much much later. Um, I mean, thirty, I mean, thirty years later. Yeah. Uh, and it was not the same experience because, well, for one thing, it wasn't Peter Brook, um, and it wasn't that wonderful a production. It suffered from being in the round um, because it, it lost all sense of danger being in the round because the audience were just there, everywhere, so you know, anybody can leap off the stage and kill a member of the audience at the drop of a hat, I mean, in theory, you know, sure. Uh, according to the play, um, whereas in the, the old which you couldn't do that in the film, he put these bars, like a cage, so they were separate from the audience, the actors. Um, so, so there was a, a difference in conception of the production. Um, I think, generally speaking, though, Acting hadn't changed. I, I don't think a great deal. No, I think good acting was still good acting, um, and uh, uh, and very much along the same lines. Um, no, I can't say I found any great great difference. I have to say no. And have you? I mean, have you uh, have you ever had periods where you've not not been working because you seem to have have, have done that very rare thing. In the profession, of you've straddled theatre and television, and you seem to have been sort of constantly well I doing think, it. Well, I think I've been extremely lucky. I, I'm, I, I, I have to say, I don't think I've, I've hardly ever been out of work, which is wonderful. I mean, from from day one. Yeah. It's only recently, now that I've reached my great age, <laughs> that people won't employ me because of my age. Uh, so uh, it's not. The same now, obviously, because uh, one's got to an age where it seems that um, 
you know, parts are given to younger actors, well, fair enough. And the whole problem of insurance, especially in television and film. Um, if you're over a certain age, uh, you have to be insured. Well, everybody has to be insured, but it's obviously more difficult and more expensive if you're, if you're older. So, but up until fairly recently, I would say up until well, when? The last sort of biggest thing I did was probably in 2010, yeah, 2010, 2011. I did the Midsummer Murders and I did the Pirates of the Caribbean film. Mm. They were the last two things I did really. And the Iron Lady. The Iron Lady. Yeah, yeah. which I was all, my part was on the cutting room floor. Unfortunately, I had quite a nice little part in that. Um, but it was all, it was all cut. It was, um, this was a shame, but there we are. So, but up until then, no, things have been very, very, um, very good. And I mean, I don't know why. I had a good agent. I mean, that's obviously very important. Extremely good agent who got me into television because um, to go back to Stratford in the first years I was here, yeah. I, I did. Uh, when I joined, I became a, a long-term contract artist twice. So I stayed for ten years, completely solitary, considering without any break, didn't do anything else. Uh, and the only television I'd done was the uh, As You Like It, uh, RSE As You Like It, and the Comedy Verrows, which we also televised. Um, and in 1970, I decided to leave the RSC for the first time. I'd done no television apart from those things I mentioned. Uh, and um, I was a novice in the commercial theatre. I'd done nothing really, apart from a bit of rep. So my agent, I was extremely lucky here because he was representing Marmosack on Michael Bryant in The Roads to Freedom, which was then being cast and about to be done. And uh, my agent said, you look like Michael Bryant which I did, I, 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 I quite strong resemblance. And they want the part of his brother uh, in, in this series. He had two brothers, one Daniel Massey and, and my Jacques, the part I actually played. I went up to see the director, James Kethlin Jones, who was a lovely man, and he gave me the part on the spot. Uh, and I played it for, in five or six episodes of this wonderful series called Roads to Freedom which absolutely secured my television career. I mean, well, I noticed you were with yeah. James Kethlin Jones quite a lot. Well, exactly. He used me again and again and again. It was wonderful. And everybody saw it because it was a high prestige, high profile show on BBC Two, I think. And, and the work just never stopped. It was wonderful. But it's interesting because a lot of fine classical actors um, don't make that transition. Well, exactly what I'm going to say. Yeah. I was extremely lucky. If I hadn't done that, I may not have got into television. I was very lucky having that agent who happened to be representing Michael Bryant, who happened to know James Catherine Jones, you know, and sent me for it. But then again, you have to be able to do it. I mean, is it a, well, different, yes. is well, it yes. a different job um, yes. acting yeah. on television? But I found I fell into it absolutely wonderfully, because he was a lovely director for one thing. He was a very, very good director. Um, not at all dictatorial and, and extremely helpful and... Um, pointed you in the right direction all the time. I learned a lot from Michael Bryant, watching him, because he always would say, do we need all this speech, Jim? Do we, we don't need all this speech, do we? It's about two, we, we can cut a third of this speech, can't we? I can do it all by looks, he said. We can do that with looks. And of course, I learned that you can, on television, so much as looks and reaction, reacting shots, not, to, not talking, you know. 
talking just can be quite which is the opposite of stage acting which is trying to find yeah, the nuance exactly. in every word absolutely isn't it, to project yeah. it. just talking on it can be quite boring you know but looks and reactions um, and silences can speak volumes and I learned that from him particularly Michael Bryant uh, so I was very lucky it, it, I know it's wonderful because I, I just well I just went from job to job as a marvelous well which must take us to um, a, a program that if, if the listeners haven't seen I would urge them to because I'm a big Doctor Who fan but I think Secret Army is, is mm. I think the finest drama the BBC ever did and your performance interesting because I've revisited it and when I was a child mm. um, Kessler the part yeah, he yeah. played was TV's villain and yeah, he was a Nazi and yeah. horrible yeah. and actually when I watched it he's not a, you don't play him as a villain oh, and that's, no, why, no, that's the no. brilliance to me no, of I the performance no, no. Is it surprised me how sympathetic he is as yeah, a character? Yeah, yeah. And yet he is a horrible yeah, Nazi. Exactly. Yeah. But you actually quite like the fact that he escapes yes, at yeah. the end. Well, indeed. Yes. Because you yeah. play him totally sympathetically. Yes, I, I play him from his own point of view. Exactly. I, I think you have to when you're playing villains. And I, I have played a lot of villains in my time. I was always playing heavies and villains Ooh. all the time. I never played a nice guy. <laughs> um, so I thought you've got to find. The humanity in this man. He's, he is a human being, after all. Whatever he does and or, or has done or is going to do, he's still a human being, and you have to find that humanity, and you have to identify with that. You have to see from his point of view. You have to be completely immersed in him as a character. You yeah. can't make judgments about him. Say, what an awful man, or you know, why on earth is he following this awful credo? you know, Nazis, well, why is he, you know, why? You have to go with the fact that he, he, he is what he is. So, and that's what I did. I, I, I yeah. I had, a, I had a lovely letter the other day from somebody who was a historian, and he said, I want to thank you because your Kessler made me want to become an historian. Mm. The actual part you played, uh, I saw it when I was a young man, made me want to... Uh, going for history, and I'm now a, I am now a historian, uh, specialising in in, in uh, World War Two, and uh, he said something which I took very much to heart. He said, "I think you have portrayed uh, the the deepest portrayal of a Nazi that I've ever seen," which I thought was marvellous. I'm coming from him, I thought. It's an extraordinary yeah. piece. I, I remember it as a child. Yeah. But quite often when I've revisited things, yeah. obviously the memory yeah. cheats to an yeah, extent. Yeah, yeah. And I was surprised at not only how good Secret Army was, but actually how bleak and mo it's, it's a very dark show and how mm. morally complex mm. it is. And it's yeah. fascinating that actually, for example, Michael Culver's character, yes, the yeah. German, yeah. is actually more sympathetic than Bernard Hepton's character, yes, who is ostensibly yeah. the hero who saves yeah. British Airmen. I know, who's a real sort of, well, out for himself, isn't it? It's an ex yeah. it's an extraordinarily morally complex. It is series. absolutely yes, it is yeah, and that was down to the writer John Brayson, mm -hmm. uh, almost entirely I would say. Uh, I suppose to some extent Jerry Glazer, the producer, who obviously sort of guided the thing overall, but but the actual writing of the scripts, or the uh, the writing of the storylines, was John Brayson, who was absolutely marvellous. I thought, um, absolutely, um, he did all his research. Nearly every episode is based on something that really happened. I mean, it's all which is terrifying. More or less based on the fact, yeah. With a very <coughs> sad, yeah, yeah. Because the even the um, even the court martial at the end of 
of Reinhardt. And, and the, the firing squad is based on an actual event which happened, you know. Which is extraordinary for, for the listener yeah. who doesn't know is that yeah. when the war is over, yes, one yeah. of the main characters at yes. your best, yes. who's a sympathetic German Absolutely. officer, yeah, yeah. is executed yeah. because he decides not to kill somebody, yeah. because he, yeah. he surrenders his weapon, doesn't That's he? Right. That, that's right, yeah, 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 yeah. So um, we were blessed with very good scripts, obviously. And what was nice, of course, as it, as it went on, um, he wrote bits of John Brace, wrote more and more for me, my character, and, and, and the others as well. He, he, he developed my character in a way that we were able to uh, uh, follow and pursue as um, interesting developments, you know, giving him the girlfriend. Well, you do these yeah. most awful things, yeah, and yet yeah. you have this touching love yeah, story. Absolutely, touching, yeah, yeah. Very simple love yeah, story, absolutely. actually. Absolutely, yes. Um, Funny, that was my wife's, my wife's idea. In the first series, she, my wife said to me, I think you should have a girlfriend in the next series. And lo and behold, when we went back, Jenny Glaser said, we are going to give you a girlfriend. I thought, oh, that's great, yeah. Yes, <laughs> yeah. But, it's, uh, but, it, but it, was a, it was key to the character, key to bringing out his, his private side. Yes. Because what's interesting about those people is the public and the private. Always the public persona and the private but what individual. I, what I like is that I think if it was made today, they would make a big thing of that, and he'd yeah, argue yeah. with his girlfriend about how can you do these nasty oh, yeah, things. He would, and, yeah. and you actually don't do that at all. No, not at all. No, they yeah. are in love with each other. Absolutely, and that's it. And, yeah. and he does his thing as well. Yes, exactly. Which yeah, I think yeah. is much more sophisticated. Well, it is actually. Yes, I agree. I agree with you. Yes, yes. And, um, and, and so what about making, because obviously television is not made that way anymore, you know, multi-camera in a studio, yeah, yeah. mixture of film and, yeah, uh, yeah. and studio, so uh, uh, as an actor, uh, I mean, do you miss those, that, you know, television is not done like that anymore, no, do, you I, I, that, I, do you think that's a loss? I think it possibly is, yes, I mean, I used to enjoy that way of working very much, and obviously I did a lot of it, because all television was done like that in those days, um, you have a few days of filming, and then two, um, weeks rehearsal perhaps and then maybe two or three days in the studio and you add the film you see it on the screens you know being fed into the into the final tape um i, I like that um and I, and I don't on the whole like the, the the current way which is of course um on film where you you go to a location and you meet somebody with whom you're going to have a big scene and, and you may not have met them before <clears throat> and you, you and you got up at I know four in the morning or something to get there, you know, and you're not on top form the first day or so, um, and you're expected to, with hardly any rehearsal to do this scene, you know, on one camera, with a camera sort of in your face. I mean, literally, sort of, you know, um, a few feet away from you, and it's it's quite um, trying. You have to. Uh, I, I find I I have to. I don't do it now, obviously, but when I did gird myself up for this sort of kind of experience. Um, you have to be really on top of it. I learned a lot from Anthony Hopkins, who I did a couple of televisions with. Uh, he, he was marvellous. I, I liked him a lot. He was one of, he's another of my great heroes, Anthony Hopkins. Um, and, he, and he taught me a lot about film acting, um, which, you know, I had not done a lot of, you know, big film acting, film, not television. Um, and uh, he was a great, another great mentor. He'd always keep in character between shots, for example, 
if you know you, you do a shot and it's done they say cut and we'll go again or something and they have to or relight or reset something but he, he'd always stay in character he wouldn't sort of come out and chat with the crew or he would just stay exactly as he had been then when he <coughs> he was offered another shot or we were or, you know, in the scene he said I always play it slightly differently every shot so I give the director a choice of uh, you know a choice you know I just I just don't do the same thing again and again and again I do it slightly differently you know so he can choose and you think oh maybe that's an interest that, that's all I use so that was another thing I learned from him and the other thing was to be absolutely on top of your lines he said I go through my lines 200 times <laughs> I said really he said yes I do because then only then can you play with them if you're not really on top of them you can't play around with them you know which I like to do so I thought that's another good good lesson so I learned a lot from him um, and uh, no he was a he was a great a great ally and mentor and uh, no I think that, that, I and, that and well something like um, Secret Army of course brings the other side of action yeah. to it is that you're suddenly a household mm. face and mm. name and um, is, is, is that a side of acting that has, has impacted on you and did you did you find a change when you were suddenly in a in a hit show um, no I found it very nice I, I didn't worry me at all um, because the, the one before me was Anthony Valentine mm. who'd been in Colditz mm. and he he told me I get all these hate letters or something he said oh yeah hate mail you know um, <clears throat> and I didn't get any hate mail at all and I can and I got a lot of you know nice letters, nice sort of fan letters in fact, my agent said, at one point, he said, you, you get more fan mail than any other client in this, this agency. Which I thought was quite, quite something. Quite something. Yes. Um, but they, they were all very complimentary. You know, they were all very sort of saying how well you acted, how, how you know, how we, not, not that we sympathize with you, but we, we, we can see your point of view and how you presented a kind of three-dimensional character. And, you know, and thank you very much for that. It was, it was good. And, of course, we, we, we often talk about different stage directors, but the, 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 the television directors, um, uh, you were working with, a, you know, a, a vast array of different directors yes, on, yeah. on Secret mm. Army. So do any stick out as ones that made your job easier or oh, the, yes. who, who you thought did Well, definitely, and some who didn't. Right. We had, we had one or two, I won't get the names, so one or two non-favourites when you know, oh, he's going to be directing the next time. So, oh, dear, oh, well. We just have to get on with it, you know, because he doesn't... It was not that they were bad, but they just didn't have anything to offer. You know, it's just sort of nothing. Like a neutral sort of presence who mm -hmm. didn't offer anything. But the best ones were... Some, there were some very good directors we had. Um, <clears throat> Michael Bryant was one, actually a director, not the actor, yeah. who, who then went to do Kessler. Michael E. Bryant, yes, Michael he's, did, he's did, partaken did, did, in this process. Kessler. Uh, and um, Kenneth Ives I liked early on. Um, who else? Um, Paul Annette, I liked very much. Paul Annette, who actually wrote an episode for me, which was very nice of him. Uh, uh, he directed several episodes. Who else? No, I think, uh, and then of course Tristan de Cole, who came in to do the Kessler with Michael Bryant. Yeah. He wasn't on Secret Army, but. It was nice. I'd worked with him before quite a lot in other things, and 
I liked him a lot, Tristan de Cole. And uh, he came on to Kessler and he was lovely. <coughs> so when we did Kessler, we just had the two. And that was great because they were two well, favourites, really. Yes. Yeah, really which yeah. which, which yeah. Uh, is your own series. So yeah, you, absolutely. You get, you yeah. get a spin off. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Which was in its way very nice. Uh, we had a lot of um, argument about when it should be set. Um, because I was absolutely of the opinion <coughs> it should be more or less straight after the war. Because I said to Jerry Glaister and John Brayson, because by this stage I I was allowed to say what I thought, you know, absolutely. Sure. Um, and clearly they couldn't make the series without me, so I, <laughs> I was in quite a um, I said, it, it should be just after the war. Surely that's what's most interesting, isn't it? How these people got away <clears throat> with not being tried at Nuremore or anywhere else and, and filtered back into German society and became big businessmen or whatever they did, you know. And there's been no films about this, or very few, very few, and certainly no television about it. I thought it would be really, really interesting to see how this man got back into society. And you'd still have his wife and his daughter, there's a daughter obviously later on, um, how they grow up and how they cope. And, and Jerry said, yes, you're right, but unfortunately it would cost too much because of the period. We, we can't afford the period. It would cost it would cost the earth. So we're going to make it in 1975, I think, which was 25 years after the war. Yeah. And Kester was by then about 70 or something. So, but an old man, certainly an old man. And I thought, oh, what a shame. And and, uh, and Madeleine won't be in it because she'd have died. But you, you will have the grown-up daughter, played by Alison Glennie, um, which was which was nice, but she's grown up. She's a sort of neo-Nazi, you know. So it's not quite not quite the same. So it was not quite as happy as a sort of general idea, I don't think. Um, although it, it sort of worked in its way, but it's it, it could have been better, and it, it and it was not as good as Secret Army, I think. I, my own personal feeling. And yet the interesting thing is, yeah. it sort of spun off from seeds that were sown. And I, yeah. as I say, I confess that Secret Army is a, a, a favourite of mine. Yeah. The last episode of Secret Army yeah. was pulled, oh, and I've seen yeah, it, yeah. and I, it's terrible, and it's not, it doesn't work. No, I know, I've seen it too. Uh, yeah. Isn't yeah. that extraordinary that you've yeah. got this very successful drama, and yet yeah. the very final time yes. all of yeah. you guys were together yeah. yes. was to do something that was pulled. Yeah, absolutely, I know, yeah. I mean, did you have any idea, what were your feelings when it, when it was pulled? pulled that final episode? Uh, I, I thought it was a good thing. Because I, I thought that it would have... Because um, I thought that the final episode of Secret Army, was, well, I thought the whole thing built up to a wonderful ending. I mean, it was marked. I thought that the, 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 the climax of the mm. series was terrific. And I don't think you'd beat it. I mean, I thought nothing, nothing would top that. It would just be an anti-climax. Even if it had been better than that episode, it was still an anti-climax because it's not set in the period and all that. It's, it's after the war and it's all sort of, you know, reminiscence of these old people now, you know. I mean, who's really interested in that, you know? So, no, I, I was glad it was pulled, actually. But yeah. I actually yeah. think on paper it's a marvellous avant-garde idea to yeah. take us here because oh, the war is, was, yeah. a, was, a, was a, for the viewers, was yeah. a period of history. So to then do the final episode mm. as, as the main characters looking yeah. upon yeah. it as history yeah. is a marvellous idea. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's quite a propagandist episode yeah, it is, yeah. for the right yeah. who'd done such good work yes yes and, and absolutely yes you're absolutely right and they were very un unhappy about the way Nat 
Natalie had changed, mm. become a sort of communist a piece, sympathizer. Yes, and all that sort of thing, which I must say I, I agree with. I agreed with yes. Um, no, I, I was very pleased it was Paul actually. So it's um, it's there in the archives. Yes. Yeah. But but, but not, but not, not for sure. many no. to see. No. Well, look, I've I've already um, uh, overstayed my time in terms of our conversation, so I will ask uh, maybe. Um, as, as somebody who's played so many Shakespeare parts, um, what is the one that you most enjoyed playing or the one that you think you did the best of, or those two might be the same? Uh, the, the, there's no question, the part I enjoyed, well, no, there are two, actually, I, I enjoyed the most. One is Polonius in Hamlet, which I did with Michael Maloney's Hamlet mm -hmm. in, a, a, in a production for um, West Yorkshire Playhouse and... Um, Greenwich Theatre and a tour, uh, which I, I absolutely loved. I really, really loved playing that part, and I would like to like to play it again. I'm probably a bit old now, but I wouldn't have minded playing it again. And the other favourite is here, is Antonio in The Merchant of Venice, which I played here in the sort of mid-90s, I guess, with David Calder as Shylock, directed by David Sacker, Owen Teal as Bassanio, Penny Downey as Portia, um, Christopher Luscombe was last on Gobbo. Um, that was, uh, I, I really, really enjoyed that part and that, that, that production. Um, and of course we took it to London uh, after Stratford, so we played at the Barbican. They wanted to take it to Israel, which they had done, but for some reason it didn't go. It was a great shame, because I think it would have been a sensation. But I, I, that's my... Those are my two favourites, yeah. Well, and we mentioned Hamlet, and I can't, yeah. I can't not mention that you played the ghost of the Hamlet of Kenneth Branagh. Oh, indeed, indeed. yes, yeah, yes. That was exciting. I, I enjoyed that. I, just, I enjoyed that very much. He was great. I enjoyed working with him. I'd done Fortunes of War with him on television. For James uh, Gathinger? Yes, with James Gathinger again, absolutely, yes. Um, filming in lovely places like Alexandria and Greece and that one. Um, but um, no, the Hamlet... He was lovely on that. Um, and I had this extraordinary entrance at the beginning of, of the play when the clock strikes midnight. And I came up, the, the, the front of the stage was like a little graveyard. And I came up through the graveyard, I came up through the floor, and right onto stage, all in white, or yes, white, and just walked. I and mean, that was my entrance, which was wonderful. Um, and I, there was a lovely story connected with that. Um, which I perhaps have time to say. Um, at the Barbican, which we, we actually, unusually we opened that at the Barbican and then brought it to Stratford, usually the other way around. Um, but at the Barbican, one night I had a sore throat and I knew if I went on with that big speech of the ghost, which is a long, big speech, I would probably ruin it. So I said to the company, I, I think I better not play tonight and I'll be okay tomorrow. He said, fine. Uh, Jonathan Newth, who is your understudy, will go on, which he did, and he's absolutely fine. But um, Kenneth Branagh was at that time negotiating Robert De Niro to be in his film, Frankenstein film, and he was on the phone to Los Angeles from his dressing room. So he didn't hear the call which said, tonight's performance, the ghost will be played by Jonathan Newth. So he didn't hear it. He went on stage, and, and, and we got to the point where he, the ghost turns around. It says, I am thy father's spirit, or I am thy father's spirit, as I said. Um, and he said, he came said, I froze. I said, I said, who is this man? 
he said, he said, Indeed, I thought it was my own father. He said, I, I did think that for a second. I thought I'm having a hallucination. It's my own father. And then I sort of realized, Bradbury's clever. What's going on? <laughs> so that was an extraordinary moment for him. <laughs> he thought he was seeing things. <laughs> And uh, is it because you mentioned Anthony Valentine, mm. um, you, you, yeah. you, who was in Callan? Um, oh, you, yeah. you, you had a sort of yeah. one of those lovely parts that sort of comes mm. in and out mm. over a number of years. Yes, one of, my first, one of my first television parts. Started in black and white and went into colour. That's right in the last two or three. So that was a very nice thing to do, and I think that partly led to Kessler, because um, people often ask me, "How did you get cast as Kessler?" Because obviously the competition for that was enormous. Because obviously an extremely marvellous part to play. Um, and uh, there was there was that. And another part I played in How Green Was My Valley, in which I played Mr. Jonas, who was a Welsh schoolmaster, who was an awful sadist and a very nasty man. I think those two parts, actually, which Jerry Glaister must have seen, well, he would have seen, I'm sure, got me the part of Kessler because when I went to see Jerry Glaser about Secret Army uh, I thought it was just a sort of you know, you know sort of like an interview and then I'd go mm. away and that'd be it but he actually gave me the scripts there and then when I saw him he said no I'd like you to play it wow. so he must have seen me do those sort of things and Snell well, in Callum that character is very it's Kessler-esque in fact one of the characters says he's like a breastfed Nazi Jeffrey Chater has this line in Callan saying that. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I think that's what caused that caused That's what led to me being cast, I think so. Well, and one of the things I've, I've found about doing this process, uh, early on, one of the first people I interviewed was David mm. Weston, and he said acting is actually a very sad profession. Oh. Which I thought was a, 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 a it, it, it was like a dagger to my yeah, heart. Yeah, yeah. But it's very interesting. Is yeah. that I, I suppose any actor that has a high, yeah, inevitably is yeah. followed by a low. Yeah. Yes. And as an actor that mm. has constantly worked, I mean, do you look back? Do you have? Is there anything you feel you would like to have done? Uh, yes. Yeah. Oh yes. Always. I think yes. No, I'm very, I'm, I've, I've been very happy. I mean, I've, I've been very lucky. I think <clears throat> I've had an extraordinarily happy career and on the whole very successful because I have done things that, you know, most people would like to do. You know, I've, I've done a lot with the national companies. I, I've done some nice television. I've had my own series, I mean, after all. Um, <clears throat> and, um, no, uh, and, and I've kept working. So I, I, I can't complain at all about the profession from my point of view. Um, things I'd like to have done, yes. Yes, there's always more. You'd like to have done more. No question. You'd like to have done more. I would like to have done more probably just after Secret Army. I think I would like to have done something big. Because my agent, Ronnie Waters, at that time said, I think you should uh, now do something big. Some big leading part in something. Which he tried for, it didn't really happen. Um, and Ian Richardson, I think, was in more the flavour of the month, uh, like um, House of Cards, yes. things like that. I can see you doing. Yeah, which oh. I could have, I theoretically could have done. Uh, things like that. Um, so that's that would be my regret, you know, not having gone on to do something as good or better, you know, as Secret Army. But uh, I'm very happy with that. I, I really am. 
this yes. program again. Which is, of course, why I always apologise to say that the reason we meet here is because <laughs> yeah, of Doctor yeah. Who. Yes. Um, and funny enough, as we record this, the one being broadcast is is uh, is with the director uh, Paul, yeah. uh, uh, who who goes on record and says it was a it was a difficult it was a difficult time. So yes. you remember it being quite a tough production. Oh yeah, oh, very much so. Yeah, I do. Yes, yes. Um, I do. Well, okay. Well, the final two questions yeah. are the, the, the trick questions. Uh, the first one is uh, you've kindly given your time for free, so we ask the listeners to nominate a charity. Well, I would unhesitatingly nominate the Alzheimer's Society. And uh, we nominally convened to talk about Doctor Who, uh, which still I'm sure haunts you, despite the many things that you've done. So what is your message to the Doctor Who fans who are listening? My message to the Doctor Who fans is keep listening, I guess. Uh, keep listening, um, and uh, we hope it goes from strength to strength, which it seems to be doing. Um, and uh, enjoy it. Uh, well, uh, we're going to have lunch now, but I, I, so I'd just like to say, Clifford Rose, thank you very much indeed. Not at all, you're very welcome. That was great. Thank you. I hope that was okay for you. We did an hour, I'm so sorry. My thanks to Clifford Rose, uh, who was a prime scalp for me. I'm so glad I got to do him. Uh, and that was down to his friend Ian Hogg, uh, who is a previous Who's Rounder, who uh, put us both in touch and uh, very kindly assured Clifford that it would be all right. Clifford's charity is the Alzheimer's Society, which you can donate to at uh, their website, which is www.alzheimer's.org alzheimers.org.uk alzheimers.org.uk as ever you know the smallest amount will help and uh, mean that uh, uh, you know out of this podcast will come something good um i'll be another one of these uh, this time next week in the meantime you can follow me on twitter if you like at toby haydoke and uh, keep smiling keep watching doctor who and uh, i'll see you next time cheers bye Coming soon from Big Finish Productions. Excusez-moi, this place is so busy. Would you mind if me and my friends joined you? Pardon, monsieur? At your table. Could we share it with you? Ah oui, but of course. Your accent is very... French. Oh, would you mind if I drop it though, Chuck? Oh, it's very exhaust me keeping it up. <laughs> Doctor Who, Muse of Fire. Modelling for painters, eh? Me? What do you reckon? Who was this mysterious woman? I don't know. Was she young? Old? It's hard to say. There was something youthful about her. She was mischievous. She was glamorous too. She had this strange hat on and dark glasses. Oh yeah, blind was she? Yeah, cheers, Ace. By the way, Professor's found some kind of mystery to investigate, so he's happy enough. That is wild time. So, we meet yet again. Do your worst. Consider the battle lines drawn. You'd really chuck away our old friendship. If needs be. So, so be it then. It's war. I need to understand more. You want me to take down my black veil and show you my actual face? 
My face is quite inhuman. I wonder what you would make of it. No! Which one should I choose? Big Finish. We love stories. That's your tracker, right? What are you tracking? Something I need to track. I've got the signal. Come on, Ace. 